Hey everybody, I'm back today to finish up my quarter three review. This has been my longest review to date by quite some margin. When I calculated the words on it on a on an online website, it said over eleven thousand. So that was pretty impressive to see that uh, you can pull eleven thousand words out of a quarter. That's about 11 pictures if you follow the old dictum. But anyways, I'll dive right in. First for today. So many of us are set up to fail psychologically because we don't learn key foundations early on. For so many unfortunate reasons, we either learn key life skills too late or we don't learn them at all. Some friends who work in emergency services, in emergency services, and my ter- my participation in a project in medical ed- in medical education, have opened my eyes to this even more than they already were. Stepping into challenging situations that can provoke anxiety, identity crises, deep sadness, loss, and helplessness, do not have to result in a dark ending, although that dark ending is often the easier road, or perhaps the only road to take if you lack the psychological skills and resources to properly manage them. Alcoholism, smoking, drug abuse, burnout, desensitization to pain, a diminishing sense of empathy, impulsivity, suicidal ideation, emotionally abusing others, self-deprecation, reduced self-worth and clarity of self-concept, putting oneself in risky situations. These are all possible outcomes on the dark road. But... How can these be avoided? My answer to that question is through investing in the development of key psychological foundations and skills early in life and encouraging adults, especially parents, to work toward developing them now if they didn't do so earlier in life. The center of this is something I referenced earlier in this review, which is developing self-awareness and a self-aware way of being through accessing the lens of the observer or the eye rather than the lens of the reactor, or in other words, the me. When we can observe ourselves well from a lens of curiosity, rather than a lens of reaction and judgment, we can more clearly see and take note of how we currently operate in life and the things that truly drive us. Reflection is an immensely powerful tool in learning from our experiences and improving in this capacity to observe instead of react. I see these processes of reflection and becoming the observer in tandem with sitting down and asking the big questions like, what do I want in life? Who do I want to be? What do I value? And what is my ideal self as the center from which we can truly develop ourselves effectively? From there, we can focus on foundations and skills, which often overlap with the center I just described. Some examples of key psychological foundations and skills are Self-regulation, which is managing challenges and one's own emotions effectively without explosions and detrimental effects on well-being and performance. Growth mindset. Believing our abilities can change through effort, reframing challenge and failure as opportunities to learn and grow, and adopting better strategies instead of believing our abilities are fixed and there isn't much we can do to change about them. Confidence. Belief in the self and one's ability to do a task. Zooming out 
seeing things in the big picture instead of getting caught in the moment, such as accepting the flows of life and that life has an inevitable end that will come for everyone, even those you love. A mastery orientation, primarily focus on self-development, growth, and mastering skills instead of results and being better than others. Active listening. Instead of listening to find something to jump on in your response, really listen to what the other person is saying so that you can say it back to them in a way they would agree with. Self-respect. Treat and talk to yourself like a friend who you love and want the best for. Identify purpose. Connect the relevance of a given task to your identity, the path you're hoping to take in life, the things that matter to you, and the things that you like doing just for the sake of doing them. Pause. Through practices like meditation, we can start to create a space between what we feel in a moment and a reaction to those feelings, which allows us to slow down in life and become less impulsive. Flow. The experience of flow, which Mihai Csikszentmihalyi identified as the optimal experience in life, takes place when the level of challenge matches our level of skill in a given task, leading to being deeply absorbed by the task often losing track of time and being fully present. Meditation can help us more easily access this state of flow, along with training our attention to not crave distraction over time. Activities we do in a state of flow typically result in both greater enjoyment and performance. This is by no means a complete list, but it gets us started. Perhaps in a future review or a separate article, I'll fully define my framework in writing. Going back to normal never happens. Every life experience changes us. We are always updating and changing, which means that even when we return to the same environments we used to occupy within similar structures, we approach it differently, even if it is just ever so slightly, because of how we have changed. For this reason, I don't think there is ever a way to return to quote-unquote normal, especially after a significant experience. The example that prompted this learning for me was our second wedding here in Brazil. My wife and I had very similar life structures before and after the wedding, between work, exercise, cooking, eating, our personal routines and practices, and sleeping. However, the experience of the wedding itself changed this. Receiving friends and family from around the world and showing them Rio de Janeiro over the course of two weeks was an impactful experience. We learned that we were capable of doing things that we had never done before along with sharing experiences with each other and with people who attended the wedding that were special and profound. There was no way of coming out of those weeks and being the same afterwards. And if we were not the same, those similar structures were not going to feel the same when we returned to them. That is indeed what happened. Returning to those structures felt similar, but it was not the same. We had evolved, and because of that, we had to adjust and find new ways to accommodate for those evolved versions of ourselves, which led to an evolution of what our quote-unquote normal was. Through this experience, it's quite obvious that this will happen again, and again, and again. It takes time for your gut to catch up to your head. When it came time to say goodbye to the people who came to our wedding in Rio from abroad, especially my family and close friends from home, I rationally understood the whole time that they would indeed leave at the end. I knew their visit was temporary and that we could all go back to our day-to-day lives. 
I said goodbye to Gabby many times before in that same airport. I said goodbye to my family many times before as well. This wasn't a particularly new situation for me, and I had prepared for those moments of goodbye. I did my best to make the most of the time with them. I knew that I would see them again in the next year or so. My life without them here was still quite good, and I had spent years changing my orientation toward death from a stoic perspective. I even knew how it would play out and how the emotional process would work. I knew that I can't simply think my way out of it. It was inevitable that it would hurt. It's supposed to hurt. I love these people and I love being with them. I feel at home with them and have felt that way for a long time. I have so many beautiful shared memories with them at various points in my life. Instead of trying to reduce the emotional pain, which I knew was the wrong goal, the right goal was to just accept the pain and recognize that it only hurts because of how great my relationships with them are. Saying goodbye wasn't supposed to be easy. Those feelings are meant to come because of that context, and that is okay. Despite this complete understanding, I still found myself crying quite intensely in my apartment after my friends left, and in the airport when my family left. I was overcome by feelings of emptiness and melancholy a few times in the hours and days after their departure. It was in those moments that I realized just how distinct my mental and emotional worlds are. It appears that the principal way to really progress emotionally in circumstances like this is to go through these experiences over and over again with meaningful reflection while or shortly after feeling the sadness and negative emotions of the moment. I talked to my wife openly about these emotions as they happened, which facilitated a lot of this processing. Managing these emotions more effectively is a long game. Trying to make it a short game can lead us to some significantly negative consequences such as closing your heart to others to avoid pain when it comes time to say goodbye. Sharing a genuine goodbye with the people closest to us is something we don't want to give up. A great recipe for regret and bitterness is to avoid genuinely opening our hearts when we say our final goodbye, when we say our final goodbye to someone. Given we rarely know when the final goodbye will be, it's better to adopt this attitude with each goodbye, even if it brings emotional challenges along with it. Those challenges are worth it. And that concludes my quarter three review. Hope that you enjoyed that and found a lot of value in it. I certainly continue to do so as I go through this process over and over again, and I hope that you're at least benefiting in some way. Thank you for listening and for engaging, and as always, much love. In the meantime, take care. Cheers.